Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. A couple of things I want you to know as we go into our teaching time this morning. First of all, we're doing a special call business meeting next Sunday. So we have invited a new student minister to join our staff. He's going to go through the process this week of meeting with several different groups here in our church, students and deacons and staff. And if all things go well, really, I was just kidding about having them come down during the preaching time. Actually, say, why not? If you wear a cool hat, you can come down whenever you want to, okay? But we're going to do a special call business meeting at the end of both of our services on Sunday. So next Sunday at the end, we'll have a time. And, and I don't want it to be a business meeting. I think calling a staff member shouldn't be business. It should be a very spiritual experience. And so we'll affirm God's call in this person's life and their call to come here. Should everything go well this week, and we're anticipating that it will. Uh, the person that you will hear more about this week, his name is Stuart Tilley. And he is currently the youth pastor at First Baptist Church in Durant, Oklahoma. So he's telling his church today, if you have friends in Durant, don't text them right now in the middle of church. Let him tell his folks there, and he'll be joining us next week. And, and if you're a deacon, he'll be joining us tomorrow night for that meeting as well. So uh, we also have next Sunday our Serve Somewhere event. This is an opportunity for you to look at all the service opportunities in our church. And if you're not serving to plug in, we're going to lure you into the fellowship hall with the sweet smell of cinnamon rolls. And then we will close the doors and not let you out until you sign up for something. That's the way it works. I'm just kidding. But that opportunity between 9.15 and 10.15 next week will be there. Uh, coffee with the pastor, if you're new around First Tulsa, April 2nd. I think that's two weeks from today. be an opportunity for us to sit together, have a cup of coffee, explore what it means to be a part of this church. And one last thing, in the window ledges with our announcement sheets next to our offering boxes is a card I would invite you to take. The week after Easter, we're going to start our teaching series, The Gospel According to the Beatles, and I can't wait. This is going to be a lot of fun. This is not just, you can clap if you want to. You can clap. Are you clapping for the Beatles or, or what? I don't know. Nothing like a good smattering of applause to get us really moving here today. So thank you for that. But this is not just about us. This has a complete list of the songs that we're going to be singing, and this is meant for you to hand out to somebody else who doesn't have a church, isn't plugged in right now. This is about as easy as it gets to invite somebody to join you for worship, and they will hear some great music and some fantastic teaching to boot, right? Yeah, that's where the smattering of applause comes in. Let's, let's move on, okay? So, <laughs> it's terrible when you have to ask for applause, right? All right, so Mark chapter 10, I'm going to ask you to turn there in your Bibles with me, and we're going to do what we've done the last couple of weeks, because in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, Jesus does the same thing. One time in each chapter, He tells His disciples that He's going to be rejected by the leaders, be crucified, and killed as Messiah. He says that in Mark chapter 8, says that in Mark chapter 9, says it again in Mark chapter 10. And so what we're doing is each week, we're just taking that entire chapter and talking through it and walking through it and getting to that point, all right? But I want to start with a question before we jump in here, and it's this. Am I really a disciple of Jesus, or am I only a Christian by the current standards of that term? And by the way, the current standards of being called a Christian, the current standards are really pretty low. 
In fact, they're abysmally low. So am I truly a disciple of Jesus, or am I only a nominal Christian, a Christian by current standards? A few years ago, the Royal Academy of Chemistry offered Sherlock Holmes an honorary membership. Sherlock Holmes is not a real person. He's a character in books and movies invented by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is not real, but the Royal Academy of Chemistry invited him in as an honorary member because the leader said this. He said, Sherlock Holmes is so much a part of our culture, he has transcended fictional boundaries. Think about that. Here's a character who's transcended fictional boundaries and almost become real. The thing is, he's not. So now here's what discipleship is. Discipleship is becoming a real person. Following Jesus Christ is rejecting the fictional myth that I am number one in life and laying down that burden of always having to be first because that's just not reality. The person who is number one in life is not me. It's supposed to be Jesus Christ. But many people, and myself included, have tried to be a mediocre Christian and go, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to be first. We need to transcend that boundary, transcend that fiction and say, no, he's number one. So, am I truly a follower of Jesus or am I only a Christian by the current standards of that term? Now, before we start reading through Mark chapter 10, there is one verse I want to point out that really is the centerpiece of this chapter, and it's the lens by which we're going to view everything here, but it's also the centerpiece of the entire gospel, in my opinion. It's Mark 10, 45, which says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life to free many. So I want you to hold on to that verse. And as we go through, this will be the verse to kind of tie all these loose threads together. Let's go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus left that place and went to the district of Judea. He crossed the Jordan, and here comes the crowds. The crowds gathered around, and again, He taught them as He was accustomed to doing. And then some Pharisees came up. Let me pause right here. Have you ever had one of those days where the only time somebody talks to you is when they want something? Moms, do you know what I mean? Teachers, do you know what I mean? If you're uh, higher, you go in an organization as a CEO, the only time people talk to you is when they want something. So this is one of those days for Jesus. The only time somebody talked to him is when they wanted something. And it can be frustrating, but it was also very fruitful because it gives us this instruction from the teachings of Jesus. Some Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked whether a man should be allowed to divorce his wife. Some of your stress levels just went up a little bit. But he answered, what did Moses command you to do? They said, Moses permits a man to divorce his wife by drawing up a divorce notice. Jesus said, what Moses did was on account of your, and my translation says, perversity. Your translation probably says hardness of heart or something similar to that. So when I read that word in this translation, the Goodspeed translation, it kind of shocked me. Moses gave this command because of your perversity. And then I looked up that word. And by the way, the word vert in there means to, to turn. So you can convert, you can invert, you can revert, or you can pervert, which means to turn inside out. 
You've taken the whole idea of marriage and you've gutted it. You've turned it inside out. Here's an example of this. Clayton Christensen, who's a business leader and a thinker, he graduated from Harvard Business School in 1979. As he goes back for the reunions every year of these high-level, very successful people, I'll, I'll just let him speak for himself. Over the years, I've watched my friends and their fates from Harvard Business School, class of 1979, unfold. I've seen more and more of them come to reunions unhappy, divorced, alienated from their children. I can guarantee you that not a single one of them graduated with the deliberate strategy of getting divorced and raising children who hate them. Yet a shocking number of them implemented that strategy. They've lived their lives inadvertently invested in hollow unhappiness. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you graduated high school or college, you said, I want to be miserable by the time I was 50. Or maybe some of you did. I don't know. There's kind of a lot of silence in this room. I don't think anybody intends to do that, but what do we do? We pervert life's intent and we stop going after those things that really matter and we invest ourselves in things that don't. So if you're married today or thinking about getting married, listen up. What Jesus says is really important here. He says, it was on account of your perversity that Moses laid down this law. Jesus says, let's go back to the beginning. Let's just start over again. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man must leave his father and mother, and he and his wife must become one, so that they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Here's the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is not happiness. Okay? By the way, it's okay to be happy in your marriage. It's good to be happy in your marriage. But if you want to achieve that, it's not by seeking it directly. It's by seeking something else first and letting happiness find you. And that something else, Jesus says, is oneness. The two people are to begin to forge one identity. By the way, marriage is not easy, but it doesn't have to be that hard. Marriage is not easy. Waiting for somebody to say amen, right? But maybe it doesn't have to be as hard as we've made it. What if you did something like this? What if your afternoon, you sit down over a cup of coffee with your spouse and just ask this question, am I easy to live with? I better clear my calendar this week. It's gonna... But if you really want your marriage to work, why don't you just look at your spouse? And by the way, if they say, no, here's the ways I need you to be easier to live with, you know what you do? You listen to it because they're telling you what they need, okay? What if you just aspire to be a person who's easy to live with? And then in your marriage, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus served as a means of accomplishing salvation, don't you think we can serve as a means of accomplishing something in our marriage? What if the wife were to say to her husband, I'm going to outserve you? And the husband goes, No, you're not. I'm going to outserve you. And you both try to outserve one another. Pretty soon you're going to find a sense of oneness. And it's not by seeking happiness, but letting happiness find you as that oneness takes place. So the disciples are kind of scratching their head, and it's one of those times they asked for a follow-up. They got Jesus by himself and said, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Now, many things Jesus says about divorce is hard to understand. This one is actually pretty clear. It's pretty simple. 
He says this in verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against his former wife. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she is an adulteress. What he's speaking about here is not divorce per se, but if you're married, you go, I like them better. I'm going to get rid of this one and trade them in. It might be legal, but it's not right. In other words, if you're married to say, I want to get rid of this person and go after this person, it might work well in a court of law, but before the court of God, it doesn't hold up. Okay. I want to quote Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. It says, love the one you're with. I can't believe I quoted Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, but it, but it, but it holds up a little bit. Love the one you're with. A person who is a serial divorcer hopefully will sooner or later realize that the problem is not with whoever they're married to, the problem is with themselves. And we have to eradicate the myth that I am number one in life and follow Christ and serve my spouse as a result. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. Then Jesus shifts from there. Now, now here's a kind of another family issue. Here children are being brought to Him. Children being brought to Him for Him to touch them. And the disciples reproved them. And, and when Jesus saw this, He was indignant and said, let the children come to Me. Let me say a very candid word about service this week. Find those who are invisible to everyone else except followers of Christ. There's a frog in South Central America. It's called the glass frog. Very interesting physiology. It hops around and is like a normal frog during the day, but at night, it can collect all of its organs in one place in its body, collect all of its blood in one place in its body, and it literally becomes invisible because of its transparent skin. It's called the glass frog. It's invisible to predators when it's most vulnerable. We live in a world where so many people are invisible. And what would happen as followers of Jesus if we started seeing people who no one else sees and we care for them and we love them and we give them dignity? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here's another way of saying that. You remember Jesus when he said, without me, you can do nothing? In Mark 10, 45, he kind of flips that around and he says, if you do nothing, it will be without me. Without me, you can do nothing. But if you decide to do nothing, it will be without me. Serve. Serve in your home. Serve and see people that no one else sees. Ask God to give you eyes to see those who are invisible to everyone else but a follower of Jesus. Now, because of time here, I want to look at two people. Um, children were easy to overlook. This next man was not too hard to overlook. So in verse 16, uh, he took the children in his arms, blessed them. As he was starting again on his journey, a man came running up to him and knelt down at his feet. Good master, what must I... And by the way, pay attention to how much this guy uses the personal pronoun I. And if you're not a grammarian, I is a personal pronoun. I'm just saying that for everyone to know. I thought that'd be funny. I guess not. Yeah. Good master, what must I do to make sure I have eternal life? 
Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Boy, he drops a big hint right there. You know the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. I was just talking about that. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Master, I have obeyed all of these commands since I was a child. And Jesus looked at him and said, pause right here. The essence of lostness is profound self-focus. If you don't remember anything else I say today, would you just remember that? It doesn't roll off the tongue easily. It doesn't catch in the mind quickly. But that right there, that sentence is worth its weight in gold. The essence of lostness is profound self-focus. If you feel lost today, I can almost guarantee you 99.9% of this is true. If you feel lost, it is because you are focused on yourself. And we must reject the fiction that I am number one in life, that I always have to get my own way. The truth is, I am designed and made to be a follower of Jesus. He becomes number one, not me. So the essence of lostness is a profound self-focus. And so Jesus takes that, he looks at this man, it says, and he loved him. Jesus says what he's about to say, not out of hate, but out of love. Here's one thing you lack. Go, sell everything. Give your money to the poor. Then you'll have riches in heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't ask this of everybody, but he sure does ask this of some of us, that we take on a radical step, a radical statement of saying, I will no longer be first in my life. That belongs to Jesus Christ. And he may be asking some of you to do things that you don't completely understand. Here's what I said to a lot of folks that were coming down the aisle today, and I'm going to say it to all of you. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. I don't know what that means entirely, but, but I don't have to understand it to share it. Seek the Lord. You are not number one. He is. And the man walks away because he just can't get his eyes off of himself. So, I'm going to skip down here. I said we were going to go through the whole chapter, but I, I want to kind of keep us moving along. The disciples are amazed because uh, here this man walks away. He was rich, and Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to come into the kingdom of God, and that just blew their minds. That blew their minds because in their theology, in their understanding, God blessed materially those he loved. It was a Jewish prosperity gospel. And so if somebody was rich, if they couldn't get to heaven, well, God really loves them. Who can get in? And Jesus says, what's impossible with you is very possible for God. He can change your heart if you let him. So I'm going to go down to verse 32. Let me talk about what I don't understand here. As they went on their way up to Jerusalem... Jesus walked ahead of them, and it says this, they were dismayed, and those who followed him were afraid. And let me stop here for just a minute and say, in your following of Jesus, there are going to be times that you don't understand what he's doing. That's okay. That's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with you. There's going to be times that you're following Jesus, and you just don't understand what he's doing. There's also going to be times where you follow Jesus, and you're going to be scared out of your wits, and you're afraid. That's not a sin. That's an emotion, right? What do we do? We follow Jesus anyway. And here's what I don't understand. 
They were dismayed, they were confused, and they were afraid. We're not told why. Here Jesus is turning his face toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, and they start getting a little edgy. They start getting a little tense, I think, and we're not told here, but if you've ever been in the presence of somebody who is tense and intense, it rubs off on everyone around them. And so Jesus is a little stressed out himself here as he goes toward Jerusalem, and he says for the third time. It's almost as though Jesus is saying this one time for every day he's going to be in the grave. See, we are going to Jerusalem, verse 33, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the high priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the heathen, the Romans. They will ridicule him, spit on him, flog him, and even kill him. But three days later, he will rise again. Now, here's what happens. In Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, each time Jesus expresses what's about to happen, that he's about to die for the sins of humanity, the disciples come along and make the conversation about them. Have I mentioned to you that the essence of lostness is profound self-focus? Each time, the first time Peter, when Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter goes, no, not on my watch. Second time Jesus says this, the disciples start talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And the third time, now James and John pipe in. Zebedee's two sons, James and John, said, Master, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really, Jesus had just said, I'm going to die, and it's about them. Let us sit at your right and one at your left in your triumph. If you're king, you're going to need a cabinet. You're going to need your secretary of state and secretary of defense. Let us be those people. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking, but you will follow me. In, in a way, they would be at Jesus' right and left. Think about this. Two brothers, James and John. James, of the 12 disciples, was the first to die as a martyr. And John, of the disciples, was the last to die. And so all the disciples, James and John, would bookend all the disciples that would give their lives for Jesus. So James would die very young. John would die very old. With whatever time we are given, and not a single one of us is promised tomorrow, how do we live? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Now, what I wonder is, John, as a very old man, when the book of Mark was already in circulation, if he read this part and he went, oh, man, why did Mark have to put that in there? I mean, how many of you would like your greatest mistake to be recorded in a book that was the bestseller of all time? Okay. It's embarrassing. But at least John would have the privilege of knowing that that brought something out of Jesus. It says this in verse 42. You know those who rule over the heathen, the Romans, they lord it. They're men who tyrannize. Not so with you. If you're a leader, and I made plenty of leadership mistakes in my life, and usually it's because I'm acting like the first half of this verse and not the latter half of this verse. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to hold first place must be everyone's slave, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Without me, you can do nothing. 
if you want to do nothing, it will be without me. All right. Are you with me? Three of you. Are you with me? All right. One more picture, okay, and then we're going to be done. I know some of you are looking at your watch. Probably I'm more concerned about it than you are. Uh, There's one more picture here that's worth seeing. And I almost see a comparison here between the rich young ruler, as we've come to call him, and Bartimaeus. If you notice this, the rich young ruler is all about I, I, I. Bartimaeus is thinking only about Jesus, all right? So they came to Jericho. As they were leaving the town uh, with his disciples, here comes a great crowd, and Timaeus, son of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting on the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, you, son of David, take pity on me. By the way, if you don't know how to pray, there's a great tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years called the Jesus Prayer. And it's based on this verse right here. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's almost the perfect prayer in whatever situation you're in, and it's rooted right here. Many of the people rebuked him and told him to be still, but he cried out all the louder. By the way, we live in a world where we focus on our woundedness. We focus on how other people have hurt us. And Bartimaeus could have focused on these people that told him to pipe down, but instead of focusing on how other people are hurting him, he's focused on the one who can help him and heal him. In other words, let's not give in to focusing on our woundedness. That goes nowhere. Let's admit our brokenness before God and that we need Him. So, he called out even louder, and Jesus said, let him come to me. Here's what my my translation says. Somebody says to him, courage now, get up, he's calling you. I like that. Let's have that all be our greeting this week. Whenever you see somebody, don't say hi. Look at them and go, courage now. And they will look at you just like you're looking at me right now. Okay. But what did Patrick O'Rourke said? He said this, the difference between cowardice and courage is the difference between playing it safe and playing for keeps. Here's a guy who's playing for keeps. Courage now. So he jumps up, and here's what I really want you to see. What happens next is a salvation picture. He threw off his coat. In those days, your coat and your blanket was the same garment. He's homeless. He's blind. You know it stinks to high heaven. There's no laundromat in the first century. He throws this thing off, just as Hebrews 12 says, let us throw off all the sins and everything that entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He throws this off, his past life. He sprang to his feet. He went to Jesus. Jesus spoke to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus knew, but he wants us to tell him. He wants us to come to that place where we admit what we really need. And can I say, if you can't articulate it today, if you're feeling that lostness because of profound self-focus, the person you need is Jesus. He's who you need. Master, let me regain my sight. Go on your way, your faith has cured you, and immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Remember we dealt with that word perversion here a little bit ago that that it means to turn inside out. Here this man lives overtly. 
he turns publicly to Jesus and turns his entire life over to him. He sees him. He follows him. He gives up the fiction of just being another persona. Now he's a disciple of Jesus made in the image of God. And that's exactly what God wants for each of us. So a lady came out of the Japanese concentration camps in World War II. When she was put in, she was an American, she was put into this concentration camp. She smuggled in with her a Gospel of John. And every night, after lights out, she would pull her covers over her head, light a small candle, and memorize the Gospel of John. And every time she finished with a page, she would tear it out, and she would take it into the toilet and made sure that it disappeared so that nobody knew. And she said, in that way, John and I parted company. But she memorized over the course of her captivity the entire book of John. So the day of release came, and all the prisoners were walking out like zombies because they had been brainwashed. But she came out looking, as one person said, as bright as a button, and said, Did, was she brainwashed? And somebody who knew what was going on said, no, she was not brainwashed. God washed her brain. That's what God wants to do with us, to wash our brain, to wash our heart, to wash our life, to change the way we think and feel and live until we are more than just mediocre Christians, until we reject that fiction that we're number one in life. Really, it's Jesus who is number one. And you know what he says? Come to me. Let's stand together and let's pray about these things. So, Jesus, you were very clear that even you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life to free many people. Without you, we can do nothing, but if we decide to do nothing, it will be without you. We need your presence in our life to understand what it means to serve the world around us, but also we need you to reveal to us what it means to be saved. And God, I really do believe that the essence of being lost is just being profoundly focused on ourselves. So would you bring us to a point that we are absolutely convinced that we are not number one, that you are, and to live our lives not according to a fiction, but according to your reality. Jesus, it is in your name that we offer our prayer. Amen. So Bartimaeus was overt. He threw off what was holding him back. He went toward Jesus. That's my invitation for you today. Here's what we believe. We believe that anyone who calls Jesus Lord steps into a new relationship with him that not only will affect the way you live the rest of your life, but will affect your eternity, that you will live in a forever growing relationship with God. But it has to be your decision to say, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. I give myself to him. And the first step of obedience of that is an overt act of baptism. So I want to invite you this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus, to say yes. If you've never been baptized, to say yes, to throw off everything that's holding you back. And you can do that today. We have a baptistry in the corridor. We have people that on occasion take advantage of this, but this is my call today for you to overtly follow Jesus and to follow him through the waters of baptism and to say he is Lord before God and before everyone. If you need to make that decision, Today is the day. I will baptize you myself today. 
We have everything you need. Let's seek the Lord. Come to Him. I'm going to ask Jeff to, to lead us in a time of worship. If you need to talk with somebody, you walk right out these back doors. I will be in the follow-up room just on the other side of this corridor. I'll be there in 30 seconds. Unless somebody stops me, then I'll run them over, and I'll be there in 40 seconds. But I will meet you there, and if you need to make a decision, let's move right now, and I'll meet you across the hall. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.